0: I mean, I believe that the Canadian constitution has been flagrantly violated time and time and time again. It seems that politicians subvert and maneuver around it at their pleasure and at their will in order to advance societal rights, but then they sacrifice individual rights to do so. Mm. And then it seems like we get neither.
1: Hello and welcome to Freedom Feature. I'm Barry Bussey. With me today, I have a young man from Alberta, Tanner Nade. Tanner is a young man who's decided to start up an organization and he's concerned about the rule of law. So welcome, Tanner.
0: Thank you for having me, Barry.
1: I'm so excited to be on. Tell me a little bit about who you are and tell us about your organization and what you're all about.
0: So my name, like you said, is Tanner Nade. I'm an industrial organizational uh, economist. I studied at the University of Calgary. I graduated a couple of years ago. And as I was um, passing through my studies and then into, into the real world and so on, it became supremely evident that our society is is being crushed um, by what I would call subjectivism, this subjectivist, um, uh, progressive, postmodern worldview and so as I was making my way through uh, society, through Alberta these, these couple of years, about eight months ago, I was contacted by a man named Dr. Dennis Modry. And he was telling me about this new project he had started up, which is now called the Alberta Prosperity Project. And the reason for our existence, it's an educational society, is to convince all Albertans on the merits of independence inside or outside of Canada. What our, our thesis in a sense is is that Canada is being overrun and taken over by this subjectivist postmodern worldview when we find this to be um, a danger, not only to ourselves, but to all others around us. And so we are advocating for a return to the rule of law, we want to, we are advocating for um, Alberta to become a sovereign constitutional republic, and so on. And so I've been working with that Um, here over the last couple of months. It's been a lot of fun. The reception has been phenomenal. I would argue that the people are, are ready for a return to objective morality, objective laws, and reason, so I would say. So do
1: I take it that you folks then wanting a separation, as
0: it were, from the rest
1: of Canada? Is that the goal?
0: Our aim is independence. We believe that, you know, if we held a referendum on independence and it was successful, and then we went to Ottawa and negotiated the new terms that we believe are necessary to foster a free society, then we're happy to stay inside Canada. However, the precedent that seems to be set is or is being set is that Ottawa is um, at present unreasonable and we're not so certain they would negotiate. And we believe that our freedoms are absolute and fundamental and so if it were required that we needed to gain independence from canada in order to protect those rights and freedoms uh, we would do so
1: what is it in particular uh, you say you use the term subjectivism but Mm -hmm. what are the earmarks of that subjectivism that you find so offensive that you're willing to say hey canada Mm -hmm. if you don't Mm -hmm. smarten up we're gone
0: as an economist, this isn't, I suppose, on subjectivism. But as an economist, Alberta's certainly been taken advantage of in Canada due to our our economic generation and wealth. We, the Lord, has blessed us with. I would. It's almost like an Eden. We have an Eden of oil underneath our our feet, and so on, and 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 hard workers and and humble families, and so on, that generate a lot of wealth. But with regards to your question about subjectivism, I would even look uh, back at the last month here. What we're seeing in Ottawa, particularly. And of course, across Canada, in the provinces, are politicians and demagogues unleashed who do not submit themselves to an objective standard. That is, it seems to me that they believe that they themselves are the standard of right and wrong. But of course, if that's true, then it means man is the standard of right and wrong. And we all know that that, that men and women do bad things often and, and they can be wrong. And so that seems to me to be a problem. Mr Trudeau has this idea that we can be progressivist and and you know his his election platform last election was we're moving forward for everyone but I don't understand what the word forward in his election platform means because if he is a progressivist always changing laws that suit the morality of his voting base then it seems to me that that forward in itself is a meaningless term instead he can only float from one policy to another ever changing his morality to appease his his voting base, and those who who also adhere to this subjective worldview. And of course, that leads to this tyranny, this anarchy, so to say. And so we want to get away from that and say, actually, even you politicians are ruled by an objective standard by which we can say what you're doing is right or what
1: you're doing is wrong. Is the standard the Constitution with the Charter of Rights? Are you happy Mm -hmm. with the Charter of Rights? Are you happy with the Canadian Constitution?
0: Well, it seems to me that the Charter of Rights is difficult to define. You know, I was reading one of your articles, and you have to excuse me, I can't remember what it was called, but you were talking about that same thing where you said rights are easy to define, but charter rights are different insofar as they seem to flow and so on. You might have been talking about the case at Trinity Western. I can't quite remember. What, what we've done in with the APP is we've said the constitution that we're proposing is the objective standard of law. And we get the rules from that constitution from the supremacy of God. I mean, I believe that the Canadian constitution has been flagrantly violated time and time and time again. It seems that politicians subvert and maneuver around it at their pleasure and at their will in order to advance societal rights, but then they sacrifice individual rights to do so. And then it seems like we get neither.
1: I'll certainly be one who would uh, agree that when it comes to the Constitution, it's almost seen as, um, okay, this is a guideline. It's not something that you necessarily want to follow strictly. But you use the term supremacy of God, which is in our preamble, supremacy mm-hmm. of God and the rule of mm-hmm. law. What is your concept of the supremacy of God?
0: In our Constitution, We we list it simply as, the Ten Commandments. But as for me, it's the Almighty is a being whose reason for existence is in himself. The rest of us find our reason for existence outside of ourselves because we were created. Mm. But, but the Lord's existence, his reason for existence is himself. And so he is totally supreme. Of course, nothing can be greater than he. He is the perfect being. And so in that, it seems to me that we find that standard. What he declares is right is right. And what he declares is wrong is wrong and we find that in the scripture. I should note that we're not the APP is not a Christian organization so to say. We believe we have a secular governance model of a separation between church and state and so on. But it's impossible I believe to argue that western society and the foundation of western society wasn't created on these foundational rules that are presented to us, for example, in the 10 commandments. And so we argue for for that as well.
1: I want to Just look at the supremacy of God. A lot Mm -hmm. of even secular law professors, for example, academics, have looked at that clause in the preamble, and they basically say that it's a recognition, or it is to be seen as a recognition Mm -hmm. of the humility of law. In other words, that it may be that there's a standard that goes above the Constitution itself. And many people refer to it as natural law or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the idea that just because you have a law doesn't make it moral. Um, And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a whole philosophical... Uh, religious, theological discussions that we've had for thousands of years trying to figure out the truth of things and what's what's moral, what's not moral, and that kind of thing. The idea that when a judge makes a decision, the supremacy of God clause would be, okay, make sure that you are making an honest, objective decision, because you may not believe in a God or believe Mm -hmm. in a deity, but there is this notion that what's right and what's wrong could even be above what the law, legislature says or what yeah. the judge says or whatever. Mm-hmm. So there's that sense of needing a humility that when you make a decision, i.e. for a judge, when you're involved in public uh, legislative debate, that there is this innate importance of humility. You know, we could even go back to the ancients of... Uh, Aristotle and um, uh, we could think in the time of the Romans, Cicero and so on that that made reference to the rule of law, but a rule of law that is uh, that has that humility. But you specifically mention God, mm-hmm. but your organization, as I as you have just stated, you're saying it's still a secular concept.
0: That's right. It's a secular, what we're proposing is a secular governance model. Yes, that's right. That's correct. But we also recognize that you have to have some foundation upon which you can say this law is just, or this law is not just. And And so so we believe that to be, believe the supremacy of God.
1: Would that concept then go back to the discussion that one would look to in the uh, I guess the canon of Western civilization to be able to say, you know, all of the debates that have gone on before us would help us to understand what that supremacy of God means. Or
0: it looks like, yes, I would say so. Yeah. As a Christian, now this is me being independent. I believe the scripture is supreme. And but... and if something, but that's just, you know, that's me being independent. But but yes, I would agree.
1: Someone who is not a Christian would be able mm-hmm. to back and say, well, yeah, okay, I can see some points that are right. made by other philosophers back in the mm-hmm. past. Precisely, precisely. I, all right, I got you now. This isn't an, an attempt to
0: impose some form of uh, theocracy. No, no, that's correct. It and, and again, from my own personal vantage point, I see the church and state one of their functions is being a check and balance on the other. The faithful church has an understanding of the scripture. That's their, their purpose is to understand what, what the Lord is saying. And because they do that, they are in the unique position of being able to challenge government and say, what you're doing is wrong, and here's why it's wrong, because it says so in this and this passage. Or what you're doing is right, and congratulations, because so-and-so says so in this passage. But if you meld the two together, then that check and balance seems to dissipate and dissolve. And it, it devolves into a danger of violating the commandment. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord. C.S. Lewis has a, has a phenomenal essay on that. It's called the Meditation on the Third Commandment, I believe. And he goes, it's so easy for the Christian, even with sincere intentions, should he ever ascend to a position of power to justify atrocities in using the name of the Lord. And so he goes, it's a very, very dangerous thing said so it's much better if the church and state are are separate, and I would agree with him, and so would so would the APP.
1: And that is something that we've seen throughout history. In fact, with the ongoing war right now in Ukraine, which is, uh, I understand, that's part of your heritage. Mm-hmm, it's true. I'm a Ukrainian. Yes, <laughs> and uh, so uh, you know, some people have uh, pointed out uh, there is there's also this uh, messianic type of mindset that perhaps mm-hmm. uh, Vladimir Putin might have with respect to, you know, th- there is a religious element here that that mm-hmm. that is something that we don't hear a whole lot being discussed about, but um, yeah, we 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 want to be careful with respect to the bringing together of church and state for the very reasons you point out. Okay. So tell me now some more of what is it you find a problem with the current situation in Canada when it comes to freedom?
0: Oh, well, with freedom, it's simply that our freedoms have been, have been taken away again at at the politician's pleasure and will without any appeal whatsoever to objective law. And I'll use, I'll use COVID as an example. When the lockdowns and so on uh, began, What I heard consistently from politicians, of course, is that we have to trust the science and that if we lock down, so-and-so lives will be affected or, or, or saved or whatever it might be. It's an appeal to emotion, it seems to me. The problem that I had with it, and I continue to have with it, is I find it impossible to derive moral authority from objective fact. Suppose that the politician's claims that lockdowns saved lives was in fact true. I'm not convinced of that argument from the data that's been, that's been revealed, but nonetheless, suppose it, suppose it was true and that lockdowns actually did save lives. From that alone, I find it impossible to derive any moral authority. It would be like me saying my car drives 200 or it can, it can drive 240 kilometers an hour. That's an objective fact, but it tells me nothing about whether or not I actually should drive 240 kilometers an hour or I have the justification for doing so and so the politicians took science and they stated a scientific fact or what they claimed was scientific fact and then they derived moral authority but that seems to me to be totally um, unjust and not at all not it doesn't at all prove any morality uh, with regards to legislation so it might be that I have the scientific knowledge to make a super weapon, but that does not give me the moral authority to make or use that super weapon. So that was one of the the problems I had. Whereas, freedoms, of course, are fundamental and they come from 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 this from the Almighty, from the supremacy of God. But the politician said, "No, we'll derive it from science, and we'll instead derive it from fact." But to me, that seems to be totally impossible. And just because I can do something or I know something, it doesn't. Give me the authority to do that thing or exercise it for my benefit. So that was that's one of the the major issues I have, is that science and morality have been married in this unholy union, which has led to a restriction, a great restriction on our freedoms.
1: I mean, obviously, as we've gone through this COVID crisis, a lot of people would say, yeah, but Tanner, the, the reality is there'd be a lot of people um, would... Are, are going to die as a result of mm-hmm. you know this uh, disease that it's making its way and the experts are to to direct
0: again. I would I would actually argue back to C.S. Lewis, which is everyone everyone has seen this article talking about how are we to live in a in a nuclear age? Which is he goes just because we have a nuclear bomb in our midst at, or that are being created overseas or whatever it might be, it need not dominate our minds. And so I'm not saying that the lockdowns were immoral. I think they were because I think it was an unjust restriction on freedom that has now proven to have absolutely no effect on the outcome of the morality of of cases and so on. But what I mean to say is you can't justify those lockdowns just on science alone. You can take that and you you can channel it to so many other different areas, which is, in my opinion, quite frightening. You know, suppose that we Introduce science into the judicial system and eventually start saying that the guilty don't need to be punished, they need to be cured. And you could stretch that and take it and say um, if a man commits a crime, he's not a criminal, he's just sick in the mind and he has to be changed and he has to be, the word is brainwashed, but he has to be conditioned, so to say be safe to be released back into society. But then of course, who knows when on earth that man will be acceptable into society? Who knows when he will be changed enough, so to say, to be released? Only the scientist. You and I have no idea about such things, but that means his sentence will be indefinite. It could be as long as as 20 years. It could be as short as two weeks. Who knows? You have to, and so in this, you have to separate science and morality, so to say. That was the point I intended to get across. You can still argue that lockdowns were moral. I just don't believe that you can purely use science to do so because it gives the bureaucrat and the bureaucratic scientist this ability to marry and then impose what they want using these ideas of of science.
1: Very interesting point there on that. Your organization is to create this sense of independence for the individual but also Mm -hmm. for the collective i.e for that's correct so
0: what's happening what are you guys doing so we're traveling at present all around the province We're, we're in the process of launching a massive educational campaign that has never been seen before in alberta and so we've been doing this for oh a couple of months now where we travel from the most southern aspects of the province to the to the most most northern parts and so on. And we we hold events and rallies and educating Albertans on the rationale and merits of independence. So that when the next election comes, when a unified independence party rises up, the people hopefully will vote for that independence party and will have a referendum on independence. And and the response has been phenomenal, so encouraging. It's the spirit and energy at those events and so on it's just it's phenomenal you folks are not a political party we are not a political party no we're strictly non-partisan our purpose is to is just to let as many Albertans know about the rationale and merits of independence but you are advocating for independence right that's correct that's correct yeah
1: the response has been huge when you say you got a positive response what kind of numbers are you looking at
0: just this last weekend, we had an event down south in Medicine Hat, and I would say there was close, there's anywhere between 1,200 and 1,500 people packed into this arena. Yeah, here to listen to what to what we had to say.
1: So who are the speakers? Are you one of the speakers?
0: I'm, I, I guess, I suppose I'm one of them. Dr. Dennis Modry is another. And then we have a uh, a library of speakers that will change based on where we're at in the province. So Dr. Michael Wagner is often with us, who is Who is uh, an Alberta... Uh, it's a political scientist, but he has a phenomenal database of history with regards to the independence movements um, in the province. Every day, Albertans will come and speak often. Our president will speak, Bob Leon, and so on. So it's just, yeah, it's um, dependent on where the event is.
1: So this is a, a new organization. Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you tell me about how it, how it started?
0: Dr. Modry was previously involved with one of the independence parties in Alberta. Um, he was the vice president for policy and governance And this was back last January, I believe. After that, there was a bit of a split. And so he left the project and him and and a number of other individuals honestly just met in a shop one day and said, we have to do something and not be hampered or handcuffed by party rules and so on, so to say, uh, contribution limits for for donations and all of these things that, that political parties are subject to. And so they composed, so to say, the outlines for this educational society, which is, well, it's almost like a a one-two punch, I want to say. Whereas, of course, political parties have, like I was saying, contribution limits and things that restrict how much they can do. But if you're a nonprofit society, well, then your options are much more open and you're able to accomplish much more. And so that's what Dr. Modri and others were envisioning. And as that came together, it became clearer and clearer that this movement was something that Albertans were extraordinarily excited to get behind. Mm-hmm. just because it was it was free of all of the political backdoor shenanigans and so on so to say it's just it's an educational society that says you know we have questions like would alberta be landlocked or what are the other merits economically to independence and so on and in these rallies and so on you can answer those and people leave being quite excited and quite refreshed and encouraged about the future i would say so it was just a bunch of men and women in a shop that said we have to do something and it seemed like this was the most appropriate avenue to take and oh. it's been it's been a phenomenal success so far
1: the reality is is that even though you do discuss these issues ultimately in order to make them real and I mm-hmm. see value in in having such a educational institution to discuss and debate and in fact mm-hmm. i think that's uh, admirable and something that we we need to be seeing more of in this country Mm -hmm. Um, but ultimately you're going to have to have a political,
0: you're going to have to have a political machine in order to make it reality. Right. A vehicle. Yes. So Ralph Klein, one of our, the most famous premier in Alberta used to say, find a parade and get behind it. That was his advice to his politicians. (laughs) And so what we're doing is we're generating this massive movement. We want to amass hundreds of thousands of, of Albertans to influence the next election, so to say. We've already had numerous MLAs and, and parties contact us and so on, knowing that this is a movement that's much greater than anything they've put on. And they recognize that this is the beginning of this parade, so to say. And they know that if they want to keep power, they're going to have to get behind it. And so you're correct that we do need a political vehicle. Our aim is to just... um. um generate so many members that 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 the political parties and operatives will have no choice but to back our our proposed policy and governance uh, documents and so on if they want to to win in the next election. So you're completely well, correct.
1: I want to ask a couple of questions. The first one is what are those policies that can you give it to us in a in a small bite size?
0: Sure. so actually if your listeners want to check our website is Alberta Prosperity. Dot com, and there it has all of the proposed policy and governance documents listed on there in detail and so on it has the actual documents uh, posted there. But what we've done is we've borrowed, for a lack of a better word, heavily from the American Constitution. It isn't it's not plagiarized or anything, but it's it's certainly borrowed very, very heavily from it. And so, of course, at the start is we recognize the individual rights and freedoms of of man are inherent and are given to us through the supremacy of God and then we proceed to detail new policies, for example, recall and so on to get corrupted politicians out of office who aren't serving their constituents. Economically, of course, where we enshrine the importance of free markets and lessening restriction. We have impressive tax reform or we're advocating for a flat tax of 10%. And then, of course, the rights and freedoms that are fundamental to man are enshrined in there as well. But it's a it's a comprehensive document. It's quite large and we're very excited. It's not American, but it's borrowed heavily from that constitution. It it, it enshrines the rights and freedoms of man so clearly and it restricts and handcuffs the ability of the politician to do anything bad, so to say. We believe it's one of the most comprehensive and cohesive constitutional documents certainly ever made in Canada. I know your friends from the JCCF, like James Kitchen and so on, have vetted it. It's gone through thousands of hours of drafting and so on. It's great. It's very exciting.
1: You're a young person yourself, Tanner. Is mm-hmm. this, um, uh, Are you indicative of the group that's coming out? Do you get a lot of young people involved in this?
0: Not my age. The average age is, at present, middle age. I'd say um, later, late 20s, maybe, yeah, early 30s and up. And you're right, the younger generation is one that we absolutely have to appeal to so to say when i was in university it was astounding to watch just the crush again of this postmodern socialist subjectivist ideology totally infiltrating the classes in my economics courses actually it was like a, a bastion we were it wasn't it hadn't quite hit there yet um and that was probably due in part to to the head of the department and so on who was uh, vehemently opposed and still is to this This welfare, statist, socialist advance. And so I didn't see it as predominantly, but when I would take an elective course, maybe in political science or something, the difference between the ideologies was honestly, was mind blowing because you could see this advance already. And just how anything related to capitalism or objective law or fundamental rights and freedoms that cannot be taken away was totally dismissed in those classes. It was in, in this tidal wave of this new society so to say just took me back at how many students were championing this this move to progressivism and to progressive morality and to postmodern thought and so part of the objectives with this educational campaign is to appeal to those to this younger generation and convince them of the merits of objective law and independence and convince them of the dangers of this new postmodern society
1: One of the things that I have found over the years is that a lot of young people don't really have much interest, for example, in history or history Mm -hmm. of ideas, because there is this element that says, well, that was then, this is now. We have moved so much further ahead than those who've gone behind us. How do you think you're going to be able to convince young people that, okay, we look back, you use the approach of the conservative mindset, people would look back at that today and they almost, uh, their eyes gloss over because that doesn't Mm -hmm. uh, make a whole lot of sense. How Mm -hmm. do you think that you're going to be able to attract the young people to say, hey, you know what? There's a future here in these thoughts.
0: The first thing I've noticed is even with all of that postmodern theory and this neo-socialist theory that's in the schools, I'm still so encouraged to see the number of students that are engaging In debate and discussion and so on, it seems to be making a bit of a revival, even with, you know, of course, Jordan Peterson and and intellectuals like that. There does seem to be a healthy amount of debate. Now, granted, the universities and so on are trying to stifle that and quiet it, but I think that I think it will triumph. Okay,
1: why do you have that confidence?
0: Because we're arguing for reality. And universities and schools and others, uh, individuals and organizations, they might try and, and break or or twist reality and hide it. But eventually that reality will snap back. It'll, it'll whack them in the face. Yeah, you can't rebel against reality forever. And to give an example, we've heard for how long now that that money printing at, at the central bank doesn't cause inflation. We've heard that for a long time. The reality has been twisted and, and it's been manipulated. And of course, now it's snapping us back in the face. And that leads us to our to the second point, which is a student or a young individual or any individual can be as ideological as they want. But at present, we're being crushed by inflation. Taxes are absolutely outrageous. Uh, jobs are, are difficult to come by and so on and all of these things. And so we're also appealing to the people's prosperity and saying, listen, you can continue to live in this old way of life, so to say, but why not join us for something much newer and much better? Something that completely generates a prosperity that's never been seen in Alberta before for the individual. Why would you want to continue paying 40% tax rates when you can, when we can bring it down to 10 and all of these things. So we're also going to appeal to that. And it's, it's an appeal to the self-interest of man, which isn't bad. Everyone is Mm self-interested. And so I'm, yeah, we're quite encouraged. We're quite encouraged. And of course, we're working with marketing agencies and so on. Those who are much better at, at reaching a diverse group of individuals and, and groups and so on. They're phenomenal with that that's their that's their job and so on and so we're very encouraged
1: now as we look at the future you folks are working on the next election provincial election 2023 so when your group looks at ottawa
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh you know it's been uh, a very common theme throughout canadian confederation it doesn't mm-hmm. matter which province you're from whether you're from quebec whether you're from newfoundland whether you're from alberta And perhaps those three provinces more than any have uh, looked at Ottawa and said, hey, Ottawa, you are taking advantage of our resources. You are Mm -hmm. causing all kinds of regulation. Mm -hmm. What is it that your group, when -hmm. you look at Ottawa,
0: what are the problems? Why is it that Canada is not working for you? I would first argue the moral argument, which I believe it actually applies to all Canadians. Secondly, I would appeal to the economic argument. And thirdly, I would appeal to the impossibility to change the Constitution to benefit Albertans individually and as a whole. So the moral argument, of course, goes without saying, which is particularly in these last five, six, seven years, whatever it might be. And of course, I know it goes in cycles, but we've seen our freedoms completely restricted. It's outrageous that, that the protesters in Ottawa were imprisoned and so on for for that literally peaceful protest. It's absurd. So that's that we have a, a significant problem with. And of course, we've also seen how closely Mr. Trudeau and his associates are tied with this globalist push, this great reset, which is no longer conspiracy. It's out in the open. And it's clear and present that they are working to advance that agenda. And we, at the APP, we do not in any way endorse or or condone that agenda. We think it's a hostile takeover of what we know and love to be free. Secondly, with the economic argument, Alberta is a generator of wealth and much of our wealth is transferred over to Ottawa to then be redistributed to other provinces, of course. But that to me is is nothing more than a socialist policy, socialist ideals, not only so, but invasive restrictions and regulations, as you mentioned, make it impossible for us to actually generate wealth at the level that we should be. For example, if we look at Bill C-69, it imposes this invasive regulatory policy that makes it entirely undesirable for investors to look at our province. The reason I say so is because, you know, suppose you're constructing a pipeline because you want to ship oil down to the Gulf, which we have a lot of. But of course, if you look at Bill C-69, it in essence says, if the government determines that your pipeline or your whatever project you're working on say it's your pipeline if your pipeline is environmentally problematic if it's not in the in the canadians self interest the government can shut it down but you and i both know that's that means nothing more than whatever is politically beneficial it's what's going to happen so if the party at the present time determines that their voters don't like pipelines the pipeline will be will be seized If on the other hand, the party determines that their voters do want pipelines, then a project will be approved. And so you might say, well, let's just wait a couple of years for a new government to form, and then we'll get our pipeline constructed. But the problem, of course, is that pipelines are expensive, and they take a long time to build. And when you do build a pipeline, your investment is what's known as a sunk cost. Meaning, if that pipeline does not ship oil, you're not going to make money. And this isn't just one or two dollars, we're talking about millions and millions and millions and billions of dollars, so to say. And so as an investor, you have to be absolutely confident that you're going to generate a return on your investment. But with Bill C-69, that's entirely impossible, because who knows if in the next election, a government will be elected who isn't sympathetic to pipelines and will therefore shut it down and you'll be left with, with a massive loss. And then thirdly, of course, was, was the appeal to the impossibility to change the constitution. The seven out of 10 provinces, 50% formula, the Senate and, and the parliament, and just even the Supreme Court and so on, the rules that define which justices are in power, just seemed to us to make it impossible that anything could ever be amended, such as equalization, so to say. It's in the other provinces' interests. It's in the government's interest and so on to keep programs like equalization in place, even if we we desire a constitutional Reform on that. And so we don't see at present any way that the Constitution can be reformed and as such are advocating for independence.
1: Let me just go back to the economic one for a little bit. there sure. a discussion about the Unified Basic Income, the UBI. Mm. You have written something about that just recently, I think, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if
0: you could just share what your concerns are with the UBI. Sure. That article I wrote, and actually what I, I spoke on a couple of weeks ago, wasn't actually pertaining so much to the handout itself, the the actual giving of the money itself. I don't agree with it. I don't think it's a wise policy. But my concern is with I believe it's section 3b, if I'm correct, where it states that that bill will also create and implement a national standard policy and so on of health. Of course, what that really means is, if you want to receive this universal basic income, you will have to abide by certain standards that the government outlines with regards to to start health. And so Suppose it's you have to be vaccinated. I'm just using um, an example. It can be anything, but suppose it's that. What's really happening, as I'm sure you see, is that that's setting up a social credit system, which is if you want to receive the benefits, in this case of the welfare state, if you want to receive the honey of the welfare state, you have to play by their rules, so to say. You have to abide by what. The government wants you to do, and it just starts with a universal basic income. But I have no doubt that will devolve into a model that's that's now common in in China, which is if you don't abide abide by government rules and regulations, whatever it might be, then you'll lose access to say riding a bus or taking public transit or going to the library. If you you know don't wear a helmet when you're riding a bike, then you'll lose access to healthcare, or you'll be lower on the list, so to say. And so what's happened, what it's what that bill does is it turns politicians into conditioners. And it enables them to shape us, those who they they rule into their image, so to say, in order to receive, like I said, the honey of the welfare state. It's impossible to do so without also being stung, so to say, it's, it's, when we submit to that sort of political interference, it enables government to completely control our lives without economic independence. And this is another essay by Lewis. It's impossible to have, in my opinion, freedom itself. If a man is not free to criticize his government for fear of having that same government either seize his assets, seize his bank accounts, take away his funding, then as far as I'm concerned, he's not free. It's just like 1984. So that that's my primary, the, the economics of the bill are, I mean, they're bad enough. I mean, we're Canada is, is broke. We're in debt and we can't keep printing money like this. It's absurd to think that we can do so, but it's the it's the underlying precedent that's set, which is if you don't play by government's rules, they can take away what you have. That to me is just appalling.
1: No, and I think that's a very good point. Is something that I've been uh, pointing out for quite some time with uh, this current government has raised a lot of issues even all the way back dealing with the Canada Summer Jobs Program, where the government decided that unless you agree with their ideology, you're not going to get money to run the summer camps, for example. Mm -hmm. One can see how the UBI, the Universal Basic Income Supplement, that government is now offering, or, or at least the discussion is, to move that way. This very point that you've raised seems to me to be at the crux, right? You talk about the importance of our first freedoms, and we see the violations clearly, you know, you're mm-hmm. unable to speak out. If you speak out, we freeze your bank account. We we don't give you the the, the money that the government is, is offering you. So there's an essence of control. While on the one hand, a lot of people would say, you know, this is great because I don't have the work. I don't have to worry about work. It takes off a lot of pressure. I can be more creative and do my own thing. But the reality is you're giving up your control, which I think a lot of people have not had an opportunity really to be uh, uh, seriously uh, contemplating this. One of the things that it strikes me as I'm listening to you getting to know a little bit about uh, your organization is that as government becomes more and more draconian in their Mm -hmm. measures, it seems to me it's only a natural it's it's like a natural reflex that others will say well no we're not having this and your organization is proof positive of my thought that when government becomes so overbearing others are going to say well no this is not how we want to live this is not this is not who we are this is not in this case this is not how canadians are this is not who We've been taught to appreciate one another from various different groupings across the country, around the world, really, have come into this country. We've we've been able to live in a free society, in a country that has given us so much. Mm-hmm. Your forebearers, as you mentioned, uh, from the Ukraine, and we see what's happening there today. But they came because of those struggles uh, to a free land. And now we're seeing that freedom being slowly ebbed away. And it becomes extremely important for us to wake up to this reality, it seems to me, of what is happening within the country. And we have to be ever mindful that we have to um, push back. Because if we don't push back, if we don't speak out, then these things are just constantly creeping in. One of the things that um, I... I noticed on a, on a piece you wrote just recently, and I just want to get the quote here, it was dealing with Max Weber. You said, Max Weber thought power had a corrosive element, an authority, and a non-coercive one. Mm-hmm. And then you pointed out, that uh, Mr. Trudeau, you say, operates purely on the former, that Mm -hmm. has that coercive element. Mm -hmm. Uh, The peoples of Canada do what he says, not because Canadians want to obey him, but because if they don't, he seizes their bank accounts, freezes their financial assets. No one, not even other leaders around the world, respects him. Compare our prime minister with the prodigious leaders of the past, like Abraham Lincoln, Winston Churchill, Hannibal, and so on. He's our current prime minister. He has uh, made his decisions that that has caused a lot of concern for not only people in this country, but as we saw recently when he was over in the European Parliament, mm-hmm. a lot of criticism there. But I want us to to think about just for a few more minutes that we got left here is to uh, think about this concept of power, this concept of power that has that coercive element mm-hmm. and. Uh, one of the things I have noted uh, throughout time is that when governments take upon themselves power or advance their power, we generally don't see them give it back. You know, I mean, after all, the Income Tax Act was brought in the World mm-hmm. War One. I- as a means to, for a temporary measure to deal with the fighting of the war, but it's been a rather long temporary time. (laughs) Uh, Then, of course, we saw in 2001, the government brought in all kinds of security measures for response to 9-11 attack. And when we go to our airport and we go into lineups for security, we are searched as if we're walking into some i don't know some bank where there's lots of gold that people are afraid that uh, you're going to steal i mean it's 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 very invasive we haven't changed that right i mean that is still with us those authorities that power that government had granted to itself all great legitimate reasons fighting the war fighting terrorism and now we have another crisis Um, with the COVID, and we see the government gaining even more power, as we saw with just freezing the bank accounts because you dared to donate to a cause that the government found unacceptable. It it seems that as as time is going on, we're seeing this increase of power and the unwillingness to step back from that power. Ultimately, we're thankful that the Senate was about to uh, vote no on the prime minister, at least it seems that's One of the big reasons why he stepped back. Another, some people have been suggesting that it was the fact that in Canada, there's been a run on the banks of sort. Uh, I know a lot of people have shared with me personally that they've been taking money out of the bank. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, some have even been looking at offshore. You're an economist Has that been something that you have seen or has concerned you with respect to this increase of government power that we have experienced over the last couple of months?
0: Oh, yes, certainly. Your story about the runs on the banks are not isolated. I've heard many stories of that as well, and for good reason. The people are acting rationally. Why would they want to keep their money in an account, now knowing that if the government wants to seize their cash at any time for any arbitrary reason, They can do so. So what Trudeau did in the span of honestly a day is going to have repercussions for decades to come. No one has confidence now in our banking structure or in our market because they're not certain that their savings will be there when they need to pull them out. It's the exact same story as as what I was mentioning earlier with Bill C-69 and pipelines. You put your money into an account and you expect it to be there when you return, but that expectation is totally lost. And so no one has confidence in our banking structure, which is a vital thing for for an industrialized civilized economy because of course banks hand out loans and so on and, and enable people to to purchase what they otherwise couldn't and it's just it's it's of course for convenience and all of these things and so yes we're very concerned about it you're i think you're absolutely correct that when appointed power or when robed with new powers it's rare that government gives them back their desire is to impose their will on the people. And if they're given a greater ability to do so, it well, when has it ever happened in history where a government gave it back willingly? If they did, that government is venerated as one of the most civilized, mm. humane governments to ever exist. So I think you're, you're absolutely correct.
1: In order for freedom to exist, we need to have trust. We need to have trust in our neighbors. We need to have trust in our government. And we have seen a breakdown of that trust. Have we ever, as you've studied economics, have we ever had a situation in Canada where because you had a difference of opinion with government or even, I, I mean, I guess we've we've had situations where if you owe the government money for taxes, government will take the money. Uh, but have we ever seen a political use of that power, of freezing bank accounts?
0: Not to my knowledge, not arbitrarily like this. It, there's There's justification if the man's a criminal of course, if he's violated the objective law. But this this is totally conditioning the Canadian population to do exactly what the government says. That's all that this is. And it says, if you don't do as we say, we will confiscate your right and your ability to feed your family. Absolutely appalling. That's it's uh, To my knowledge, it's the only time in history, in Canadian history, excuse me, that this sort of thing has happened. It's unbelievable.
1: It is unbelievable. It's certainly one that has uh, shook a lot of people. I know of individuals who actually have now left this country and have moved other in other countries because of of the things that have been happening over the last two years here in Canada, which, which to me is um, reason enough for us who are still living here, who look for the promise of our future to... Stand up and say, okay, enough is enough. We have got to make sure that we restore that trust. I always like and try to end on positive notes uh, in my discussions. What are some positive things we could tell our listeners that we need to do
0: in order to maintain our freedom? Again, I would actually look to what we're doing right now, which is the individual has to just simply stand up for his rights and freedoms. First, I would say that government might try to dominate our bodies, but they need not dominate our minds. My intention is to go on living as a free man, no matter what government says. I will not let my rights and freedoms that are inherent to me and given to me by God be taken away by demagogues in legislature or parliament just because they feel it's their duty and obligation to do so. No, I intend to live as a free man. And that in itself is is powerful enough. But mm-hmm look at what the truckers accomplished in just two weeks. It's true that Trudeau oppressed them and he and he sees bank accounts and so on. But certainly the lifting of restrictions and, and the removal of mandates and all of those things in large part happened because the people decided to demonstrate to the government that we're not going to stand for this nonsense any longer. I would argue it simply starts at the individual. Live free. And when, when assembled in such a way of a group of individuals all fighting for freedom, I find it I think it's impossible for government to win and to crush. so that's what I would that's what I would say keep going as we're going, which is simply stand up for rights and freedoms. Okay well Tanner, I want to thank you so very
1: much for being our guest here today and I can you just give us your website again so people can find out more about your organization? Oh sure it's
0: albertaprosperity.com all one word. Yeah, just albertaprosperity.com. And we're on Facebook and Instagram, and, and the names are always Alberta Prosperity Project. Okay,
1: folks. Uh, and again, thank you so much, Tanner, for, for being with us. We here at First Freedoms, we are standing for the freedom of speech, the freedom of conscience, and the inviolability of the person. Now, this means that we allow people to be able to speak and to share what they are doing, and we want to be entering into conversation and dialogue. Now, you may not agree with uh, either me or my guest who's here on our program, but that's the whole purpose. It is for us to be able to have these discussions so we can broaden our views and, and understand where our fellow citizens are coming from. And I think it's a big mistake for government when they try to shut down speech, when they try to shut down those who are wanting to be able to voice their opposition to what government is doing, because in essence, what will end up happening is that there's going to be a backlash. And we see uh, backlashes coming across the country. And as was mentioned, uh, the truckers are but one example. But so is this organization, Alberta Prosperity i just ask that uh, you just keep in mind that it's up to you to maintain your freedom it's not up to government and so it's going to be extremely important for you to hold government to account and until next time i'm barry bussey the fight for freedom consists not only in the legal battles in court but also in the battle of ideas at the universities and in the media. It takes time, effort and money to keep on top of the debates for freedom. Your donation allows us to keep fighting for all Canadians. FirstFreedoms.ca